0: before we start, just a quick warning that this episode contains descriptions of violence or sexual content that may not be suitable for all listeners. The siege catapult's ropes and timbers creak menacingly as the operators prime it for the next shot. It's an ugly thing, a triangular frame supporting a long wooden hurling arm with a sling at the business end carrying a great hunk of rock. With a cry, men at the other end of the catapult yank the ropes with all their strength. And the catapult whips the heavy stone through the air, sending it hurtling towards the target. The wind is with them, and it's a lucky shot. The rock smashes into its target, shattering stone, mangling flesh, and sending up a devastating shower of shrapnel. This isn't a complicated bit of kit. Using some pretty basic maths, it transforms the brute strength of a few grunting men into the irresistible velocity of a small boulder arcing hundreds of metres through the air. But it's wickedly effective, which is why it's an absolute must-have in the arsenal of any medieval army. And today, at the start of May 1179, a huge collection of these catapults have been assembled in front of Taillebourg, a castle overlooking the River Charente in western Aquitaine. The castle, ruled by an Aquitanian lord called Geoffrey de Rançon, sits proudly on a rocky outcrop so steep and rugged that it's impossible to approach from all but one side. And that side is heavily defended with towers, walls and troops it's supposed to be unbreakable. But for the young man in charge of the army currently attacking it, the word unbreakable isn't a deterrent, it's a challenge. That leader is Richard, Duke of Aquitaine, the second son of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. He's 21 years old, tall and red-headed, with long limbs and twitchy, restless hands. He is, by some distance, the most able and enthusiastic warrior in the whole Plantagenet family. He needs to be. Aquitaine is beautiful, a land of poetry, song and fine wine, but it's a tough place to run. Those drunken poets can get rowdy, and under the Plantagenets there's almost always some unhappy lord or other cooking up a rebellion. For a while, during the great war without love, of 1173-4, that unhappy lord was Richard himself. But since then, Richard's reconciled with his father and he's a hell of a poacher turned gamekeeper. If you mess with Plantagenet authority, Richard comes after you. And if Richard comes after you, you'd better be afraid. His rule in Aquitaine is described as a regime of violence by one chronicler of the time. Another claims that Richard's way of dealing with unruly subjects is to carry off their wives and daughters by force and make them his concubines, before handing them on to his military retainers. And he surrounds himself with some scary guys, including a group of ultra-violent mercenaries. All in all, you don't want to mess with Richard. He's also becoming an expert at siege warfare. This is the most important type of combat in the late 12th century when castles are the centres of power and authority. At Tyburg Castle in May 1179, Richard is about to demonstrate just how good he's got at siegecraft since he began training in Aquitaine as a teenager. His strategy for attacking this castle has two main elements. He uses his siege catapults to keep up a constant battering of the most heavily defended castle wall, as well as bombarding the small town that stands in front of the castle, inside thick walls of its own. At the same time, he sends those merciless mercenaries of his to wreak as much havoc as they can in the fields and undefended villages of the local area. They have a license to spread terror, So the defenders inside the castle, who are loyal to the disobedient Geoffrey de Ranson, find themselves looking out on a pretty depressing scene. Vineyards, where the grapevines were just springing into life, are being hacked to bits. Barns and outbuildings are on fire. Animals are either set loose to trample crops or slaughtered and left to rot. Peasants who are supposed to be working the land have either fled or are being beaten and killed. After about a week, this has become too much for the garrison of the castle to bear. The catapults haven't quite smashed their walls down, but the bombardment has probably driven them half mad with what amounts to medieval shell shock. And they can't stand to watch another moment of the devastation unfolding outside. So they do just what Richard wants them to. They decide to charge out of the inner castle, through the walled town of Tyburg and out towards the besiegers' camp, in the hope of chasing them off. It's a bold move, no doubt about that. It's also borderline insane. Because when the castle garrison make this charge, they come up against an aggressive force led by Richard himself. Not only does the attack fail... Richard's men counter-attack so fiercely that they're able to chase the garrison back into the town before they can bar the gates. Panicking, the defenders leg it back into the castle itself, but now things are worse than ever. Richard's men carry on battering their defences with the catapults and they set to work looting and burning the town to the ground. It takes a while for the reality of all this to sink in, but after three days, the defenders send word to Richard that they're ready to give up. Richard accepts their surrender. When the chief rebel, Geoffrey de Ronson, turns up, Richard graciously accepts his submission too, although he makes him give up the keys not only to Tyburg, but also another castle at Pons. Meanwhile, one of Geoffrey's most important allies, the fantastically named Volgrin, Count of Angoulême, is so scared at what Richard might do to him that he turns up as well to voluntarily surrender two of his own finest strongholds. This, in a nutshell, is what Richard is all about. Over the course of his life, he'll win plenty of battles the hard way, fighting fiercely, often in the heart of the action himself. But he'll win plenty more through sheer reputation. To his enemies, he's a bogeyman. To his supporters, he'll one day be known as Richard the Lionheart. But not everyone is afraid of him. And while Richard may have put one rebellion down, another is brewing. And this time, it's personal. I'm Dan Jones, and from something else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. A dynasty to die for. Episode 15 The Lionheart. Okay, it's finally time to get to know Richard a bit because he's about to become very important. In our last episode, we spent some time with the eldest of the Plantagenet children, Henry the Young King, in his favourite environment, the tournament. In the late 1170s, in the aftermath of the war without love, young Henry is busy turning himself into his vision of what a great prince should be – a celebrity and a playboy. Richard's path, around the same time, could scarcely be more different. Whereas young Henry lives for the show and spectacle of royal life, Richard prefers flexing his muscles for real. He does that in the service of what he assumes is going to be his lifelong project, governing the unruly province of Aquitaine. Remember, this place had been brought to the Plantagenet Empire by his mother, Eleanor. That's really important, certainly in understanding Richard's early career. Eleanor mentored Richard from a young age to become her successor in Aquitaine, and he believes, like she does, that while Aquitaine is part of the Plantagenet Empire at the moment, in the long term it has a sort of semi-independent status. It should be cherished by whoever is in charge of it, and its liberty should be defended at all costs. Richard wasn't just told this he experienced it spiritually At 14 years old he was formally invested as Duke of Aquitaine in a ceremony at Limoges That ceremony involved having the sacred ring of Saint Valerie placed on his finger Who is Saint Valerie you ask Well she was the first Christian martyr to have come from Aquitaine The history of Valerie's life is a bit sketchy to be honest with you but it's her death that became legend. The story goes that in the earliest days of Christianity, she got on the wrong side of a pagan ruler of the region, maybe a Roman governor, maybe a barbarian duke who wanted to marry her. Either way, she had her head chopped off, but then miraculously picked it up and carried it to the bishop who had first baptised her as a Christian. Not a bad story, right? But it's more than just a story. It tells us something very important about Richard. When the ring of Saint-Valerie was placed on his finger, he gained a tangible connection to a great woman who was prepared to die for what she believed in. And the ceremony itself was, I think, even more intimate than a coronation would be. It was almost like getting married to the duchy. Anyway, that's Richard's backstory. By 1179, when Richard's 21, he's been Duke of Aquitaine for seven years already. If you remember, his mother and mentor Eleanor has been under house arrest in England for five years, placed there by his own father. She and Richard are close. He's her favourite son, and her treatment must upset him. But Richard is mature enough to be pragmatic – which earns him the respect and trust of his father. In Eleanor's absence, it seems that old Henry often leaves Richard alone to rule Aquitaine on the family's behalf, only getting involved when Richard needs help dealing with particularly stubborn rebels. And although we can't say this for sure, I think that by 1179, old Henry must be pretty proud of the way his second son has handled business. The siege at Tyburg sends shockwaves around Aquitaine. That castle really had been considered invincible, yet Richard forced it into submission in less than a fortnight. And what does Richard do after the rebels hand over the castle? Following his father's example, he pulls it down, along with a number of others that he suspects could be used to cause him trouble. This is the sort of uncompromising rule old Henry can respect. It isn't just the shock of red hair and twitchy nervous energy that Richard and Henry have in common. Richard may have been Eleanor's favorite, but he's also very much his father's son. Just two years after Tyburg though, unrest in Aquitaine flares up once more, and this time it will really put Henry and Richard's relationship to the test. When Henry III chose his royal advisors, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com dynasty. Indeed.com dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller Bridge, and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find how to fail wherever you get your podcasts. Before I tell you any more about what happens with Richard and his family in Aquitaine from 1181 onwards, I just want to stop and give you a content warning. Sadly, this one's not for sex, violence, and Plantagenet rock and roll. It's for some extremely complicated politics within the insane Plantagenet Empire. Believe me when I tell you that if you spend a long time reading about this stuff, your brain will feel like you've been pelted by 100 of Richard's gnarliest siege catapults. I've done my best to boil it all down for you here, but please bear with me. Right. <clears throat> what happens in 1181 to blow Aquitaine up? In Richard and his father's face, is this. Around midsummer, that brilliantly named Count Volgren dies, leaving a baby girl as his heir. Richard, in a move that's right out of his dad's playbook, immediately says Volgren's lands should now be his to look after until said little girl is old enough to marry off. Nuh uh, say Volgren's brothers, who think the lands should be theirs. But Richard insists, and so the Angoulême brothers start, yes, you've guessed it, a rebellion. At first, it isn't much. But by the end of the year, they've convinced quite a lot of unhappy Aquitanian lords that it's time to have another pop at Richard. And crucially, in the spring of 1182, they secure the backing of a new player on the scene, the 16-year-old Philip II king of France. We met Philip, one day to be known as Philip Augustus, last episode, at his coronation as co-king. Well, now he's a solo king. His dad, and constant thorn in the Plantagenet side, Louis VII, has finally died. We'll have plenty of time to get to know Philip, He and Richard will pick up from where their dads left off and become frenemies on an epic scale for the rest of the 12th century. But at this point in our story, the most important thing about Philip is his ambition. Philip fancies his chances of becoming the greatest French king since the legendary Charlemagne, who lived nearly 400 years earlier. To do that, he'll need to make the Plantagenet's lives, as unpleasant as possible, whenever he can. So he tells the Angoulême rebels he's backing their fight against Richard's tyranny, and the rebellion in Aquitaine starts hotting up. In the short term Richard deals with it, but when things start looking tough he calls in his dad, Henry II, who calls in the young king as well, and together they all go into Aquitaine and smash the rebels' castles and positions in the usual fashion, until the rebels negotiate for peace. By summer, the rebellion is over. But, and it's a big but, Philip Augustus has done something quite canny. He stirred up Aquitaine by suggesting that the rebels will always be able to rely on help from outside. It's a smart move, aiming to embolden any future troublemakers. This is a game Philip is going to spend his entire life playing with the Plantagenets. And for good reason. Because it works. It works surprisingly quickly. That autumn, mere months after the Plantagenets quash the initial rebellion, unrest starts up again. And when it does, the rebels find the most brilliant figurehead possible for their cause. Not Philip. No, he doesn't need to waste his time getting his hands dirty. It's someone with experience doing this sort of thing. It's someone from within the Plantagenet fold. And someone who really ought to know better. It's the tournament hero and would-be Plantagenet patriarch, the brother who can always be relied upon to do the most obvious thing possible, even when it's also the dumbest. Yup. It's Henry the Young King. The brothers are now at war. To hear how this high family drama unfolds, join me on the next episode of This Is History. As always, if you're craving more Plantagenet drama, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every Thursday I release an extra episode revealing the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. And on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit ThisIsHistory.com on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.